So, Michelle. So, David. We've got a guest today. I am so excited for this I guest. I am so stoked. I I'm know. like a little fan boy. Look at me. I'm fanning <laughs> myself. Ooh. I know. Literally, you just keep sending me things that I need to read up on. I know. I've been sending you all these documents and mm. you've probably read some of them. No, I didn't read any of them, but that's okay because I'm a journalist. Because I know what I'm doing. You're smarter than me. Yep. Because today, yes. we're talking yes. to the CIA. We are. How much fun is this? Listening to I Spy, the distinguished career of Australian intelligence. I've been around the world. Have you? I've done amazing things. No, you haven't. No, it's true, I haven't. But the guy we're talking to, man, he has done some shit. Let's talk to him. Hello and welcome to I Spy. My name is Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan and we've got a very special guest. We're super excited to have very this gentleman excited about here. This one. I think everyone in I Spy land is going to be quite, They're going to enjoy this. They're, they're going to enjoy this. And if you don't, just add us at our Twitter account. What is it? At I Spy Podcast. At I Spy Podcast. Yep, you'll find us there. Now, look, it's. I'm not going to mince words here. Okay. We're talking to the CIA today. We are talking and to it's the CIA. Not the CIA. It's not the CIA that I slept with, all right, which was an accident. <laughs> I've said that already. It was an accident. Yeah. But no, it, it's not. We have got a former CIA officer. We do. Ladies and gentlemen, drum roll, please. Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark, how are you? I'm doing great. I have to say that you pronounced my name correctly. So uh, He's very good. We're off to a good start. I've spent a lot of time with a lot of Greek boys down here in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Mark, you're coming at us from, where are you at the moment? I'm in Northern Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C. Okay, perfect. Now, you're a 26-year CIA veteran, one of the agency's most decorated field officers. Why don't you talk us through how you got into being in the CIA and what kind of led you there? Sure, no, and and actually I love that. You know, everyone has a, a life journey. Yeah. And, and, you know, people always ask me, you know, how does one get into the intelligence community? But let me just start with a quick joke about my name. I've got to say this. Okay, because, good. Uh, you know, this, I was, I was a, a deputy station chief in the Middle East many years ago. And I got a call on our secure line from our briefers. The briefers were going down to see President Bush, George mm-hmm. W. Bush, and they, they wanted my take on a certain situation. So I give that to them. It's, it's a pretty big honor. I mean, this is, you know, I'm 7,000 miles from Washington, D.C., but, but the president of the United States is going to hear my analysis on a situation. So they told me to wait by the secure line. So later that night, as I'm waiting at the embassy, I got a phone call and they said they were just back from the Oval, from the Oval Office. And I said, well, what did President Bush have to say? He said, well, the, the meeting went great because the whole time he was trying to pronounce your last name. <laughs> so <laughs> so de- anyway. definitely not used to hanging out with Greek boys. No, no. <laughs> but uh, okay. So, so, you know, my life journey and, and, you know, I, I like talking about this for a couple of reasons, but first and more, f- foremost, you know, it's, it's to kind of dispel the myth that, you know, we're not superhuman. You know, if I went to the grocery store, you know, around the corner from you, you wouldn't tell one way or the other if I was a mm. intelligence officer, but you know, right. so, so I, I was born in, I was born in Greece. Uh, my dad was Greek. My mom was American. My dad was doing his, you know, his conscription, his mandatory service after he got out of uh, graduate school. So they went back to Greece. My mom was pregnant. I was born, almost born on the Greek island of Mykonos, in fact. Nice. Uh, Not a bad place to be born. No. (laughs) My mom went into into labor, flew back to Athens. But I I mentioned that because for every summer after that, we went back to the States after very quickly. But I used to go back to Greece every summer. My dad was a college professor. That meant for three months he had off. So I traveled constantly my whole life. So I had this kind of sense that there was a bigger world out there. But one key moment for me, which I really, I think, led me to, to my kind of really interesting uh, uh, profession was when I was 10 years old, my father went off to Algeria, you know, a country in North Africa, obviously mm-hmm. to do a sabbatical. He was teaching there. And my mom, and just think about this for, you know, if people have kids now, I have kids, I wouldn't have done this, but she put me by myself when I was 10 on an airplane at JFK airport in New York city, flying through Paris to meet my dad 
uh, in Algiers. And then my father and I, for a month, drove 2,000 miles through the Sahara Desert in a Volkswagen minibus. That's awesome. And I thought I was Lawrence of Arabia. I was uh. Lawrence of Arabia. That's it. <laughs> Done. That's and a huge so, adventure. You know, look, for a 10-year-old, that's Yeah, what an adventure. adventure. Yeah, totally. But I, I mean, a, but also, I, also yeah. those were the days, like I remember as well, when I was younger, you saw more kids flying solo. Yeah. Like it was more right. of a thing that you'd put kids on flights and no one really thought anything of it. Now everyone's so petrified that things are going to happen. I do it with my kids. That's right. They keep coming home. I mean, it's just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, but, you know, it's the sense that I wanted something more. And, you know, I, I loved reading, you know, novels by James Michener. There's a, there's a novel he wrote called Caravans about mm. a, a young American foreign service officer in the post-World War II period in Afghanistan. And so I was mesmerized by Afghanistan. Well, amazingly enough, you know, that this I read this, you know, probably when I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old. Then later on in my 30s, you know, I'm, you know, one of the one of the teams that went into Afghanistan after 9-11, um, sitting cross-legged across from a, a you know, a, a village elder in Helmand province. And I'm thinking back, holy cow, I mean, I read this book years ago about Afghanistan. And so I, I really, I think that's, you know, that's the life journey I went on. And I, I, I wanted to do something different and wanted something more. And I was in, in university at Cornell University in upstate New York, and the CIA came recruiting. And uh, I, they, you know, I, I was interested. I put in my application. Took a long time to get my security clearance, but it's the only job I ever had. So it's a good oh, thing wow. I'm talking to you now because I'm not I'm not sure what else I'm qualified to do in retirement. Um, oh my god, you two have similar life parallels, except David found his way into ASIO through um, a Being bus. An idiot. No, wasn't it like a? Didn't you find a number on the bus shelter? No, not quite. No. <laughs> 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 but, no, but, no, 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 no. It was, wasn't that classy. No. Um. <laughs> so anyway, you've led teams all over the world. You've conducted mm-hmm. some of the most important operations in the Middle East and beyond. I mean, your expertise also lies in counterterrorism, which we're really fascinated with yeah. and covert sure. action and stuff. So first off, you're in the CIA. How do you decide where your focus is going to be? Because I'd imagine like it would be pretty sure. broad, right? Right. So, so I had, a, I had a, actually a, a kind of unique journey again, you know, from the beginning. So I was in graduate school when I was recruited. I'd written my master's degree thesis in Algeria. And so I was actually recruited by the analytic side of yeah. CIA. And so I entered in 1993. But after several years and, and doing multiple trips to the Middle East, I wanted to, be, to, to switch over to the operational side. And, and uh, amazingly enough, I went to my boss on the analytics side at the time, a guy by the name of John Brennan, who, of course, later became director of CIA. Yes. Uh, and I said, look, I, I don't you know, I think I want to be a case officer. I want to be an operations officer. I want to live overseas. I had the right kind of personality and makeup. Uh, and he said, yeah, no problem. You can transfer over. And I joke about it with him later on, even now, because he didn't really try to keep me on the analytic <laughs> side. I probably was a really crappy analyst. Um, but I, to his credit, he wanted to keep me in the organization. So then I went to the training kind of cycle, the evolutions to become a case officer, which is a one-year program. And so off I go there. Look, I, you know, I, I had uh, uh, spent a lot of time, you know, writing and thinking about the Middle East. I had actually started learning Arabic, and so it was pretty obvious that 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 was the region of the world where I was going to go. And then, frankly, you know, as as you know, the this is it starts to become the the late '90s. And, uh, you know, the really kind of the, the notion of counterterrorism and the rise of Osama bin Laden was on our radar screen. Remember, the U.S. embassy bombings happened in 1998. Yeah. yeah. In, uh, the embassy bombings in, in Nairobi and Dar and Dar es Salaam. And so this was something that I wanted to do. And of course, then for everybody, 2001 changed changed our lives. So you were pre 9/11. You were in the CIA before. Yeah, obviously 26 yeah. years. So yeah, you, I went in 93. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. wow, 93. The, the year I left ASIO. Uh, <laughs> you are my replacement, and it looks like you're That's a lot right. more effective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you 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 went into this. You started. So you were an analyst for about two years. Then you moved into yep. operations, 
And then, mm-hmm. of course, the big flip happens with 9-11. Right. And, I mean, we're still watching the effects of that ripple down through the line even now. Sure. But it also said you were working sort of in clandestine ups in Europe as well, which yeah. I'd be interested on your take in what's going on in Europe right now, considering the clandestine operations that you were working on and the way Russia has just pushed holus bolus, its intelligence operation, into the European sphere. Sure. So, so let, me, let, me, let me kind of kind of define my – so my career was uh, in counterterrorism. Yeah. And I spent, what, almost 12 years living, you know, living and working in the Middle East and then a lot of time, almost three years in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, and, and some, you know, in, in war zone operations, which, is, which was, you know, purely counterterrorism. But the end of my career – it was really interesting. So this is uh, 2016 and 2017. Obviously, Russia and Russian interference in the U.S. elections. And mm-hmm. so, what the CIA leadership decided is they took a whole bunch of folks like me, and I'd been promoted to the senior intelligence service. So it was like the general officer class in the military. Yeah. But I had my all my whole career was in the Middle East. But I'd been involved in, in covert action and in and you know and, and being you know kind of fairly aggressive, more aggressive than other ask, other elements of the agency. But they took a whole bunch of us from the Middle East shop and the counterterrorism shop and put us on Russia and Europe. And it was primarily after after Russian interference, but it was the idea we're going to push back on Russia. Okay. And, you know, this it's not it, it's not the same thing, you know, we're not we're not, you know, running fine fix and finish operations, although I can make a very strong case to do so. Um, <laughs> that's that's you know, that's in my dreams, but no, but ultimately it was really working with our partners overseas to expose Russian malfeasance. Mm. You know, Russia Russia saw Europe as its playground. You know, whether it's election interference, assassination operations, I mean, they were running roughshod everywhere. And so it was our job to kind of work with with, uh, you know, with our, our friends and allies to expose them. And, you know, that there's there's some nobility in that. You know, there's when you walk into CIA headquarters, there's there's uh, on the left on the right is our memorial wall, which is sacred. These are the, the stars on the wall where our yeah. officers have been killed in the line of duty. On the left, though, there's a biblical verse and it says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And so ultimately, it's the idea of of exposing Russian malfeasance, but telling the truth. This isn't this isn't propaganda. It's exposing Russian activities worldwide, and, and you know that's something that I think uh, you know we did back then, and it, clearly they're continuing to do mm. now as well. It's almost a model of of how to how to kind of counter Russian hybrid warfare is to expose what they're doing. Can I ask? Considering you know you're an intelligence officer of 26 years, you know you've you've got a really good handle on the entire intelligence community. How disappointed are you in the lack of pro- the seeming lack of professionalism in the Russian intelligence organization? In that it seems it literally seems like it's peopled by cowboys. Well, I'm, I'm enjoying this immensely. In fact. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, Russia is our enemy. There's no yeah. doubt about this. This is you know, and so what I think has been really interesting is to see, and it, it goes across the board for kind of the Russian security services and the military. You know, it's a Potemkin village. I mean, yeah. it's it's a Potemkin army, Potemkin village. You know, we had we had built up this kind of mythology that the Russians were ten feet tall. The Russian military has been a catastrophic failure, but so is the Russian intelligence services, in particular the FSB, which the, the internal service, which for some bizarre reason only in Russia was actually in charge of the Ukraine file. Yeah, but they failed miserably in Ukraine, and and ultimately doing you know uh, making the huge mistake of not providing Vladimir Putin with accurate intelligence. And so you know the notion that I, I think that you know while while Western analysts saw that that Kiev could fall within 36 hours. And we were wrong about that because we really kind of overestimated the Russian prowess of the Russian military. But at the same time, I think that the, the Russian intelligence service were telling Vladimir Putin that that would happen as well. Yeah. And so this has been a spectacular failure by by this, you know, once vaunted defenders of the state. And I just say I must, you know, I think a lot of my colleagues and I, you know, are, are take some satisfaction on that because I never thought the Russians were 10 feet tall to begin with. It was just a matter of the West never really uh, uh, kind of fought back, never countered them 
in, in a proper fashion. I think it's also a case of, you know, the, the whole Hollywood syndrome in that they were portrayed as Dolph Lundgren and they actually wound up being Mr. Bean. I mean, they just became that <laughs> right. sort of they, right. you know, a ridiculous – they became a parody of themselves to a lot of, a great degree. And I think also, as you say – Putin's intelligence weren't giving him the information because they probably didn't want to give him information that would upset him. I think that's the other right. Point. That's the that's the classic dilemma of being an intelligence officer in an autocratic regime. If yeah. you tell the truth, you might you know fall out of an apartment window. A lot of that happening at the moment, particularly in the oil industry. Do not be an oil baron. Not a good place. I do want to go back, though, to talking about your time in Afghanistan and also looking at kind of the time around 9-11 because, you know, these were really complex periods in politics as well. We saw, you know, with Clinton, he kind of overextended what was happening. Uh, There's the bombing of the Sudanese factory that kind of everyone's attributing to blowback for September 11th. What do you think was the role in American foreign policy in terms of, you know, kind of seeing that rise of Osama bin Laden? Sure. So uh, what, a, what a great question. I'll tell you that, that in this, you know, again, my, my career has been so interesting in that, uh, you know, I, and this is what I used to tell young officers when they would come into the, uh, the intelligence community. I said, you know, you're going to be a witness to history. And I don't know if I was lucky. I don't know if I raised my hand all the time, but so many kind of seminal events I happen to have been there or participated in. But I remember in 1996, in, on the analytic side of CIA, we wrote a paper we wrote an analytic paper about the rise of the Afghan Arabs. Now, what was that? Those were the Arab Mujahideen, the Arab freedom fighters who fought against the Soviets, who then, you know, there was this idea of blowback. So the, the, the war in Afghanistan is winding down. So all these really kind of extremist fighters are now spreading out uh, around the globe. But in this paper, there was a little appendix, and it was about a young Saudi financier named Osama bin Laden. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, but, but ultimately, I think that, you know, the, it, 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 it took 9-11, a catastrophic attack with, with you know, 3,000 Americans killed um, for America to become serious about counterterrorism. And I'm look, I'm brutally honest when I talk about this and I talk about it all the time. You know, you know, we had to almost adopt kind of the Israeli model of, of going after and killing our enemies and being comfortable with it. So there was, you know, the, the United States, uh, you know, through very legal means, but through covert action, you know, uh, uh, decided to undertake the intelligence community and the U.S. military, a targeted killing program where we're going to go and, and kill uh, as many Al-Qaeda members as possible, both the foot soldiers and the senior leadership. Yeah. That wasn't done before 9-11. It wasn't even contemplated. So there was a huge paradigm shift to take offensive action. And, and you know, I think, you know, I, this was something that I was, I was very intimately involved in. I'm actually fine. I'm proud of it because I think that's what you have to do with your enemies. And, you know, what I tell people about this, and, you know, you could, you know, take it or leave it. I was on the ground in Afghanistan. We were scooping up Al-Qaeda prisoners. So I saw these hardened Al-Qaeda members, you know, who are on the run. This is in maybe early 2002. And in debriefing them and looking at them, you know, if, if they if they had the chance, they would, they would, you know, gut me, you, your mother, sister, brother, and your entire neighborhood. Yeah. These were hardened, hardened terrorists. There's no, you know, process of kind of rehabilitation. And that, you know, that when it comes to that and you understand that and we are in a war with them, the, the idea, I think, uh, you know, of in the, in the sense of killing them before they kill us, becomes a little more palatable. And again, this is not, you know, this is not, n- nothing new. This is, this is the policy of the United States government that became extremely aggressive. And I think that, you know, it, you know ultimately, uh, and I look back and there's a, we could talk about kind of the 20 years in Afghanistan and, and all the kind of some of the mistakes that the United States government made. But the fact of the matter is there was not another attack on U.S. soil. And I think there's something that the intelligence community can be proud of. Yeah, I mean, look, there is no doubt there were mistakes made, but at some point to... 
you know, there's a global responsibility and for a very long time America felt that that was their thing, that they had the global responsibility to jump in and, like, try and fix things. But what we've seen is whenever they tried to fix things, it quite often didn't turn out the way that you would like. What do you think would have happened if there were moments where America just kind of sat back and watched things unfold instead of jumping in and helping? Well, I think, I mean, we had no, you know, we had no choice, in my view, in terms of kind of the invasion of Afghanistan. Whether we have to stay there 20 years is another whole story. And, you know, again, we start ending up, you know, conducting nation building. Uh, But ultimately, we had to invade Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a safe haven, uh, you know, uh, uh, for Al Qaeda. And, and, you know, we had to we had to kind of track down uh, the Al Qaeda members uh, as they were fleeing. So I have no problem with that. You know, you're right. A lot of these conflicts, and I, and, I, and I think about Iraq, and forget the whole issue about weapons of mass destruction. And, and I spent a lot of time in Iraq. I went in on the infill. I went in with special operations forces yep. uh, into into Baghdad in early uh, 03. But aside from the WMD issue, you know, there is a nobility in what the United States tries to do in terms of saving people from repressive regimes. I think people forget, you know, and I worked Iraq operations before the invasion. So Saddam Hussein's regime was extraordinarily repressive. Yeah. You know, the brutality and the human rights record was it was an abysmal human rights record. So you're trying to do good. But often what happens in the United States is these things backfire. And I think that there is more of a re- realization now that, you know, things such as regime change. Um, and even even when we when we have some noble intentions, you know, maybe we should kind of uh, undertake a uh, different path. But you know, I, I, again, I, I do feel, and, and look, I, I think this is shared with our with our allies. You know, whether it's in Australia or in, in Europe, you know, there's there's a desire to do good. Sometimes, though, uh, it certainly backfires. On that, uh, once America went into Iraq, once Saddam Hussein was gone, there's the power vacuum that's occurred. Do you think that has emboldened countries like Iran? They seem to have pushed pretty heavily into northern Iraq and their, their work in Syria, Hezbollah, and also down in Yemen. So, in effect, do you see Iraq stabilising at any time soon? Because there was, earlier this year, there was quite a lot of uprising going on, particularly in Baghdad. Oh, sure. I, look, I, I mean, you know, one can make an argument, and again, that's probably the, can be discussed even in a different program, that the, the you know, the, the US invasion of Iraq caused, you know, kind of a destabilization in the region um, that has really far reaching effects. You know, in in terms of, you know, where we are with Iraq now, I mean, the ideal is for Iraq to be as stable and democratic as possible and to reduce the Iranian influence as much as possible. You know, that is a very tough goal. Yeah. And, And again, you know, Iraq, I think we look at Iraq now in a much different light. Iraq now is just part of Kind of is you know the United States and with our Gulf allies you know certainly the uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis but it's th- this desire to push back against kind of you know Iranian encroachment in the region and, and Iranian you know you know malign activities and so Iraq I think is looked in a much different light it's part of the struggle with Iran yeah and again that's you know the 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 Iranians uh, have a you know certainly have an interest there you know Iraq has Shia population is, is certainly uh, there. There are elements that are there, you know, wildly pro-Iranian. But the idea, you know, it, it, you know it, what is what I think is sad is, and we can kind of talk about the pros and cons of this. But there's a lot of American and Allied blood shed in in Iraq, and I'm not sure there's, you know, it, it's going to turn out as great a, a result as we had hoped. It certainly hasn't. It, you know, the investment in treasure and human life is quite substantial yeah. and you yeah unfortunately at the moment the results don't seem to be but let me important. let me say one thing i think i think it's important to note uh, you know so so we're talking about big picture stuff here but that wasn't my life yeah you know my life was a case officer and so i had a five meter target in front of me at all times 
you know, so I, I you know, when, when in, in terms of, you know, what, what I get up in the morning, if I'm in Iraq or Afghanistan, I have, there's a certain task I have to do. Maybe we're hunting a high value target. Maybe I have a recruitment target in front of me, an Iraqi regime official or, or you know, and so so it's I don't think about those big picture things. You know, you do so perhaps later when you're more senior in your career. But at that time, you're thinking about, you know, what goals that you have. You're thinking about the men and women to the right and left of you getting yeah. them home alive. You know, you don't really think about politics and about kind of big picture foreign policy when you're uh, when you're in essence a street case officer uh, in these regions. And by the way, that's you know to me that's what I miss the most. You know, uh, you know my job was to understand a country and a culture more than anyone. One of my proudest moments, and I can't unfortunately can't say which country it is, but Nancy Pelosi obviously uh, uh, you know is a historic figure in, in U.S. politics, and I can't even remember what position she had at the time. She she was majority leader, speaker of the house, but she was visiting the Middle East and she came to a U.S. embassy where I was the deputy station chief. She went to the ambassador. She said, who's the smartest person in this country? And they said, go talk to Mark. Oh, no. And to me, that, well, it's because I was on the street all the time. Yeah. You know, I never sat in the embassy. And so, and, and, I, and I remember when she left, she gave me a, a big hug and a kiss. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I kind of laugh at that in my career. But, but ultimately, what, you know, that's the statement I'm more proud of than anything else. And that's what I would tell younger officers when we were serving overseas is you want to be the smartest person in this country. Yeah. Period. So I want you out in the street. You know, if you're, if I see you with, you know, it, it, you know, uh, uh, in the office a lot, something's wrong. So with your time over there and like being on the street and, you know, not thinking about the big picture stuff, kind of like doing the day to day stuff. Was there a lot of pressure on you? Did you feel kind of the weight of the things that you needed to do or the tasks and what did that do for your mental health? Oh, what a great question. And it's something I'm actually, I really, I talk a lot and I work a lot in that space on mental health now, um, because ultimately, and, and I, so I, you know, I, I work with the, especially with U.S. law enforcement uh, on this issue, because I think there are many of the similarities in terms of pressure. So what does that mean? So, well, first and foremost, it depends where I was, but let's let it talk about in conflict zones. You know, you know, first of all, there's in Afghanistan, for example, I ran one of our paramilitary bases along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. And there, there was a kind of a, a, a very kind of, it's going to sound terrible when I say this, but a beautiful simplicity in this. You know, I wasn't there to dig wells. I wasn't there to win hearts and minds. We were there to track down, find, fix, and help the U.S. military finish Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. That's it. That's what I did every day for an entire year. And the pressure on that was pretty simple, perhaps kind of two pieces of it. One is to get the men and women under my command home safely. Uh, we were rocketed every day. Um, I never had an alarm clock because at 6 a.m., you know, from across the border in Pakistan, Al-Qaeda would be firing 107 millimeter rockets at us. I would talk to my family on a, on a like this and the whole, you know, the whole room is shaking. So it was getting my family home. And the second was the pressure was to to, to find, fix and finish Al-Qaeda and the Taliban before they killed more Americans, yeah. you know, either American soldiers or conduct attacks. So I, I felt an enormous amount of responsibility in that. But there was a there was a, a there was a simplicity in that. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 what 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 I tell people, and, and again, is you know, I, I was I had a lot of experience in in conflict zones like this, but but you know, my experience in Afghanistan was much different than the U.S. military, the Australian military, the British military, where yeah. uh, you know, where where you're scratching your head and you're wondering what am I doing here? You know, you know, you know, uh, we're training these Afghan forces; they don't care. You know, my, my my brothers and sisters are getting blown up. Like, what's going on? For me, it was much different. It was singular focus. We were very successful. I was very proud of what we did because we're helping, you know, or we're pursuing that counterterrorism mission. And so for me, you know, the, the war was different. Now, it's, it's still a grind over a year. And so kind of the mental health aspect is, is really important. I would tell my officers under my command, and I've, I've done so even till today. And when I talk and I, I read on leadership is, you know, taking care of you. There, there are things you can control. 
you know, you get up in the morning, you hydrate, you eat right, you exercise, keep in touch with your family, you know, you meditate. I mean, all the, you know, there's, you know, they're, they're, you know, deep breathing exercises, um, because those are the things you can control because there's going to be a lot of variables, a lot of uncontrollables during the day. And mm. some of which, you know, could lead to loss of life. And, you know, for me, that, that kind of the mental health aspect is something I learned really later in my career, but it's really important. That's really fascinating because I find it so interesting that for many years, a lot of a lot of people like yourself were in the field working these jobs and no one really thought about the mental health aspect. And, and like now, yeah. you know, it's like everyone talks about it like, oh, yeah, people would have been under a lot of pressure. Yeah. So it's just interesting that you were probably there in a time of extreme circumstance around you where you really needed to get stuff done. So when Osama bin Laden was finally shot, and, you know, taken out of action. And then also more recently with his 2IC. How important would that have been for you, even though you're, you know, you're not involved as so much now with Al-Zahiri, how important would that be for everyone to kind of see that, that outcome? So, uh, you know, the, the hunt for bin Laden to me was fascinating. Um, mm. First of all, I, I remember I was in, I was in a uh, weapons course getting ready to go to Afghanistan when he was killed. And my first reaction was, this is incredible. And my second reaction was, damn, I missed yeah. it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but there still was, you know, just cutting off the head of the snake doesn't mean there's not more work to do. So clearly there, there, there certainly was. The Zawahiri strike was, was deeply emotional for me and for a lot of people because this, you know, that's Al-Qaeda number two. But, uh, and, and I've talked about this and it's been, you know, it's been quite open in, in the press uh, the hunt for Zawahiri in particular, you know, brings out a lot of emotions because because we ran operations to find him. And in one of those uh, one of those operations, which I was involved in and I can't really talk about how I was, but I was involved in um, led to the events in Coast on December 30th, 2009, in which seven CIA officers were killed. Mm. That operation in which a double agent betrayed us and blew up seven of my colleagues was designed to find Zawahiri. And so the Zawahiri strike in the end, I think, you know, brought to some closure um, a really terrible moment in CIA history, and one that you know that I'll, I'll you know I think about every day because I, I find myself uh, you know somewhat responsible for what occurred. I was I was heavily involved in it. I lost one of my officers, and I, I'll never forget having to stand up in front of four hundred colleagues and tell them that this officer was killed, and, and people literally dropping and, and crying and howling, and and then dealing with this officer's parents, yeah, um, uh, and loved ones, and so you know it, it becomes very personal. So. So Zawahiri really offered a lot of closure to a lot of us. And it was a it was a great moment. You know, there's you can you can talk all about there's a lot of smart people in the counterterrorism world, you know, academics and, and others who, you know, talk about the importance of this or not. Uh, I feel a little differently that it was just, you know, it was it was closing the chapter on someone who we when as we were trying to find him, uh, there was some there's some real tragedy along the way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, I have been following you on Twitter. Um, oh, God, sorry. No, 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 no. It's been fascinating. <laughs> I've learned more about the Boston Red Sox than I think I really needed yes. to know. You're obviously a big That's fan. Right. Personally, yeah. I'm a cricket tragic, so I kind of share the baseball thing. Yeah. The cricket's kind of- A ball like, and a bat, it's, basically. Well, it's it's baseball with lunch. <laughs> um, okay, let me tell you about cricket. So, but I would I would watch cricket in all my times, you know, and so you know all the South Asian channels would of have course. cricket on all the time when I was in the Middle East, and I would sit there. My friends and I at the embassies would sit there, and we said I obviously could have gone online or, or, or read the rules, but I said I'm going to try to figure this out on my own. And I was there for years and never was able to. And it drove me crazy. Look, if you ever come down, I'll take you to a match and explain it to you. But I did have one question about you. I'd noticed you had made a few comments on what's going on with Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean. Really, how do you think it's affecting the intelligence community? Ah, great question. 
So, so look, so, you know, this is something that, of course, this is enormously political. And I have, I have a kind of a unique space now where I write a weekly column on intelligence for the Washington Examiner, which is a conservative paper. Yeah. Yet I'm also a paid uh, analyst for MSNBC, uh, which is a very liberal network. So it's oh. perfect because everyone's mad at me all the time. So that's a, that's a good place to be. But but look, I, I would consider myself one of those who are the never Trumpers. Uh, look, I worked for the CIA for 26 years, so I'm not a bleeding heart liberal. Yeah, uh, you know, I you know, I think a lot of people on the left might be a little upset with some of the things I've done in my past, but I think Donald Trump, uh, you know, did extraordinary damage to the United States, not not in terms of policies necessarily, but just in terms of his lack of respect for democracy. Mm. And January 6th was really a, truly a dark moment, I think, in our history. But when it comes to what's happening, you know, recently with the idea of you know what conceivably he could have taken home in terms of classified documents to Mar-a-Lago, that really kind of gets to the core of my old job, which was running human agents, running yeah. sources. And so because, and, and, and to me, and it's, it's worth noting this, the, the most fun part of my job, the most challenging, you know, what I miss, uh, of course, it's the camaraderie of my fellow colleagues, but in, in reality, it's the agents. And an agent, of course, is someone that we have recruited. It's a foreigner, it's a Russian, it's, a, it's an Iranian, it's a Chinese intelligence officer. But when you would sit down with this individual, maybe you're the recruiting officer, maybe the handling officer, but make no mistake, if, if you're running someone with those nationalities, their life is in your hands. Yeah. And you have this relationship, which is extraordinary. They're looking at you and saying, Mark, if you screw up, I'm going to die. There's no other profession like that. No. And so, you know, it, and, and when I talk about tradecraft and you, of course, you all know what this means is I have to be perfect in my surveillance detection routes and how, you know, and how I keep this agent safe. And so what Donald Trump has done in kind of, you know, with his haphazard at best, you know, handling of classified documents, certainly not wanting to give them back. And perhaps there's more nefarious reasons, but he's violating that trust that we make with our agents, because I'm sure there's a case officer and an agent sitting in a car somewhere overseas and the agent's saying, hey, what the hell? Like, you told me you'd protect my identity. And, yeah. and there's classified documents that are spilled all over this country club in, in Florida. And so I think that that for me is where it, it's it's uh, it's most damaging. It's a lack of respect for kind of the core foundational work that I did, which is that I had someone's life in my hands and, you know, I, I promised to keep them safe. And so, you know, I, I think that's why this kind of, you know, hits a nerve with me. Yeah. And I think what we did see was there was a number of CIA agents who have been taken out yeah. and they're saying that it possibly is linked to some of the stuff that Trump has kind of released. And I, I, I'm very careful on that. I don't make that jump. Right. And so what I, what I really try to do is not, is not do that. Uh, I don't know. The, yeah. And of course, because there's, there's going to be a damage assessment done by the, the director of national intelligence. That's really good. We need to see what happened. We need the FBI investigation to go forward. You know, the, what you're what you're referring to are the, the you know is, is reports that we lost. You know, both Iranian and Chinese agents. Yeah. And and uh, you know, apparently we did. I don't think we can kind of link that to what what Trump has done. And I think by doing that, in essence, if that's proven not to be the case, then yeah. Trump will say, "See, it wasn't so bad." So what, what what Donald Trump amazingly managed to, to do is to get off all the time because we accuse him of doing these worse things. When that doesn't happen and he's done really bad stuff, he just kind of washes his hands and we all kind of forget about it. But but look, the, the, the investigation has to continue. I'm keenly interested in where it goes. Yeah, no, it's uh, very fascinating. We've been watching it. I mean, I, and from a security perspective, I mean, not so much CIA, but probably more FBI. But like from a homeland security perspective, like a lot of the, the stuff that's going on with the United States internally must be really difficult to watch. 
Well, of course it is. Uh, you know, I mean, so you know, one of the things is, you know, it's January 6th, I'm watching that and I'm thinking, well, wait a second, I used to be the one reporting on this from other countries. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is madness. And I really believed in the old adage, and I guess it was John F. Kennedy who talked about America as the bright, shining city on the hill. And that's how we recruited people as well. No yes. matter what problems that were, you know, were going on in the United States, you tell someone from Iran or China uh, or, or Russia or Pakistan or, or other places is that, you know, America offers something better. And then you're seeing people, you know, violating the Capitol. And to me, that was that was incredibly hard to watch. And and look, I mean, the, the FBI has been very clear that, you know, there's more of a threat of domestic terrorism in the United States than there is from overseas. Let me throw one thing, though, back to the, the, the document dump at Mar-a-Lago, another, in which, which I have talked about quite often, is I think our foreign liaison partners are watching this mm-hmm. because we don't know what was in those documents. The fact of the matter is your government shares a lot of secrets with us. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be the station chief in any country having to go to the head of the service and say, hey, by the way, you know what? Some of your stuff was taken yeah. by Trump. That's not a good conversation to have. You don't want to do that. No. And so I think that, that I'm sure our foreign partners understand under the Biden administration things have changed but Donald Trump could win the presidency again. So would, for example, our Five Eyes partners be as willing in a future Trump administration to pass us your, your, you know, your crown jewel secrets, which you have done in the past? I don't know. Exactly. Okay, so I look, I, I just wanted that to go on forever and ever and ever. I, I'm beat. I know. I'm so I'm actually <laughs> hot and sweaty. <laughs> and it's not just the blanket thought. I mean, I am hot and sweaty because, damn, that was a great story. I know. I think we should get him back. Let's get him back. Okay. 